welcome to a classic big interview. Today, join me. We're going back to season 2015-2016. This is what I had to say about it back then. When the sun finally shines on the west end of Glasgow, we should have known that this was going to be an absolute bosker of an interview, but we didn't. We knew beforehand. Neil and Martin and I selected Charlie Nicholas because we were convinced that this was a guy, very famous now for Soccer Saturday, who'd been a footballer of tremendous creativity and quality, showing some of the skill and cheekiness and ambition that used to characterise the Scottish game and doesn't anymore. So what we wanted to do was unearth not only what it was growing up in Mary Hill that made Charlie so gifted on the ball and able to do things that others weren't able to do, what made him such an instinctive scorer, who steered him. But we wanted to to know about his life experiences. The people who crop up in this, you'd probably expect. George Graham pops up, Graham Ricks, Liam Brady, Danny McGrain at great length. If you're a Celtic fan, I'm an Aberdeen fan, and Charlie's time at Pataudry was glorious, but if you're a Celtic fan, Danny McGrain's role in Charlie's life will enchant you. It's possible that you wouldn't have expected Ron Atkinson's role over the dinner table in Charlie's decision-making process. He talks with love about football because, like me, he's still head over heels in love with the beauty of this game. If you've come out of this podcast interview without thinking more about Charlie as a man of football, I'll be deeply surprised. Sit back, get on your running machine, (laughs) turn the engine, commute to work, whatever it is you do, listen to it and just soak this up. One of the best, most enjoyable interviews I've ever been lucky enough to have. Well, anybody who's listened to these podcasts before Charlie knows is that I'm a little bit overpassionate about football. I get (laughs) kind of boyish. I don't look like a boy anymore, but football still um, completely makes me a romantic. I'm head over heels in love with it and... Moving to Spain has fueled that a little bit, yeah. but there's there's no question in my eyes that even before you made the best decision of your life and became a dandy <laughs> for a couple of years and won Aberdeen a couple of trophies, watching you, I think particularly at Celtic in the first phase, but in some of the successes you had in England with Arsenal, made me feel the same way as I now feel about some of the players that I admire in Spain, mm-hmm. because it, it it was about natural skill, really brilliant natural skill and cheek and creativity and something that made us all really excited to watch football. So I'm going to start this podcast by asking you about a mystery, Mm -hmm. a detective mystery. And it's the mystery of Johan Cruyff's shirt. As a non-Celtic fan, one of the first performances of yours that really enraptured me was you not quite single-handedly putting Ajax, Johan Cruyff playing for Ajax out of Europe. But I believe our last podcast with David Moyes and he made a grab for Johan Cruyff's shirt yeah. and got, didn't get near it. So who got it? You or George McCluskey? Or who got Cruyff's shirt in 1982 when Ajax were knocked out of the European Cup? I'll start the story with the format of who got it and it was George Toby McCluskey. Ah. As you recall, I mean, he's my all-time favourite European player, Johan Cruyff too. When I was young and getting brought up in the Celtic tradition, which was about being creative, and or you went the other way, just physically you were trying to fit into a system. And I never really understood systems. 
I just wanted to play the way I seen people. So ultimate hero was Douglas. And then overall, you look at the foreign players who, in the old days of my concept, we only got, sometimes got the one draw. So you go home and away. And it could be Juventus, could be Ajax, could be somebody pretty easy. Uh, so the concept of Europe was, all you ever did was read about these guys in magazines. And Cruyff was the one that always caught my attention. Uh, skinny, unpredictable, the Cruyff turn. I love footballers who have been, who have created something different in football. It makes me fall back in my chair and say, wow, you think sometimes it's a boyish, a stupid thing to still be in love with the game. I'm like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't like everybody coming up to my restaurant and having to talk about football because no. I do it for a living. But when I talk about people like me who love the game so much, you do tend to fall back into your, your youth. But with that time with Cruyff, they absolutely battered us at Glasgow Celtic. And we drew 2-2 in the first leg. Cruyff was genius that night because he just came in and kept feeding it to Jesper Olsen. I was getting marked by Jan Moby, later of Liverpool. Vandenberg was a big player at the time for them. And everything we did, we couldn't get to him quick enough. And Danny McGrain was, our, for me, the greatest Celtic player in my lifetime. Danny had started to say, we have to try and make inroads. So we, we got away from Glasgow at home, 2-2, and we thought, it's never going to happen. And Billy McNeil wasn't a great tactician. A great man, Caesar himself. Yeah. But he simply said a few things to us going out at the old stadium in Amsterdam. Was, we're already out, so go for it. Why not go for it? And of course, I've scored and George McCluskey scores later on. But if you remember, Graham Sinclair was one of your, your guys and he had nailed Johan Cruyff on a few occasions. <laughs> so Johan, because his age, eventually had enough. He, he couldn't take any more kicking. He, he, at this stage, he's 37, 38. He's 37, he? 38. But I mean, Graham Sinclair was just specifically there to destroy him. And what a soft gentleman he is actually off the pitch. But he couldn't believe that he actually was getting the grace to behold one of the greatest of all time. Anyway, he nailed him. He gets taken off about 15, 20 minutes to go. And we sneak through. But as you go round the old inside of the stadium, Johan Cruyff is on a treatment table. Oh, yeah. And I went by and I heard Nicholas getting shouted. And I, I kind of paused. So I put my head back round and I just got, well played. I was, you played really well. Uh, congratulations, good luck. The Ajax shirt came away. So I got the Ajax shirt and put it down my Celtic top and slowly went in. And I was probably last in, but this time most of the boys were in the shower. And of course, everybody's who got it, who got it, who got it? And there was a few quiet, I was quiet, ducked in my bag. And Danny McGrain looked at me and went, and I went, clocked that. Ah, right, a thumbs up, <laughs> wink, uh, thinking I've got it. And then, of course, when we, we got back to the hotel, George showed the number 14. And I opened mine's up just to clarify, and it was like 32 or something like that. It was just a known number. But it was just the fact that I got a word. He said a word was more than enough. That was worth for him to seek you out and say well played well, I don't think he was seeking me out I think it was just one of those moments when I'm by and for him to acknowledge and I think he was always maybe this is part of the greatness of what I and probably you love about Barcelona we talk about humility is that there is a way to lose and the concept of how he's always had that mm-hmm. from then I also always said to myself I'll never ever admit even if there's a better one that there's a better one in him because of the way that he went about the business. He is an extraordinary man. It's been a privilege of being over there, sent by UEFA, where when they were celebrating 50 years, I think, the European Cup, they sent me to his house. We went in there. And amongst, it was about a 45-minute interview, and one of the things was he still contends, absolutely, that it wasn't any big deal to lose the World Cup final because it showed the world a brand of football that because we didn't have wall-to-wall television then, there was no YouTube, no internet, that the world could learn about 
how that style was attractive, that people could copy it. Maybe he's kidding himself one, but all these years later, he still believed that the greater good of football had been served even by losing, which I think is an extraordinary statement. You might have found somebody saying afterwards, we should have won, or Germany were lucky, or Mm. the Ferrari in the German press about the wives in our social before the final affected us, whatever. Pound for pound, he's the most important man football's ever had, if you think about him as a director, a coach and a footballer. And I'm still impacted by him as much as you are now. Mm-hmm. I still find him a fascination. Every documentary or anything mm-hmm. comes on and I hear that he's on it, I have to listen. And going way back when they do the greatest teams ever now, and Ajax is on and how his other teammates talk about him. That he's such a strong influence, even at 23, 24, he had a strong influence to say, no, we have to play this way and I'll sacrifice something if I have to, but it has to be done for the right reasons. And to keep portraying that without ever winning the greatest prize ever and to be so close to it. The European Cup at that time was as big as it probably ever was for any... Champions League is massive now, you know, Mm. but in a different financial package and everything. But for World Cup and for the way that the Dutch team had this philosophy that was changing the dynamics of European football, it was extraordinary. I think he called you out when he was on the treatment table for another reason too, because you kind of underplayed the goal. And I wouldn't mind just walking through your goal. (laughs) He scored in both legs. Your opening goal was a gem, an absolute gem, describe it. We were doing a warm-up and it was the old wooden frame goalpost and I can't remember all the Ajax team's names now uh, and the keeper in particular but when we do warm-ups I always try to take myself with Pat Bonner who was our goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. The last five minutes we were warm-up or so I would always try and do something different, bending the ball or outside of my foot and I was very two-footed. A lot of people didn't actually really notice it, but I was actually a better striker of the ball with my left when I finished. I worked in that, particularly just before we went on the field. And we were doing some bits and pieces, and I was a, a chip packy a couple of times. And goalkeepers don't take it pleasantly. <laughs> and he says to me, this is on tonight. He said, you could chip this goalkeeper, he's not very tall. It's definitely on tonight. It, it's actually quite a similar goal to Archie Gemmels against Holland in the World Cup. McGarvey was in a little bit of trouble, as Frank always was. He, he was off, looked as if he was spinning and drilling for oil because he, he was spinning, spinning. No one could read where he was going to pass or whatever. But he was a great partner for me because he was a grafter. And it just came away in tight situations. And I, I was more European that way. I was, the challenge of a tighter situation was something that I always thought the Europeans had that we didn't. And I used to particularly work in that in training. There was a couple of little nutmegs in there, a bit similar to Archie Gemmel, and then suddenly I was in, about 18-yard box. I could just glance and see the keeper just coming into my vision. And as he did, I just chipped it with my left foot. And as soon as I hit it, I knew it was in. And I just started running and didn't look at the ball. I already knew it was over him. And it was a punt. It was an old terrace, and it had no steps. Just smooth, but coming down a hill. And there was one Celtic fan who did the aeroplane. <laughs> Aeroplane run all the way down and he went in the angled run by the time I got to the corner and I, I just saluted him. That's probably the greatest goal I've ever scored. And not a lot of people seen it because of Dutch TV. It was only on Dutch TV and having seen it, you know, I'll swear that Cruyff recognised a wee touch of genius because you've gone across at least four players, taken a back heel into your stride, cut left past another defender and as you say, left foot to the keeper's top right hand corner. It's absolutely glorious. You've inspired me to ask you something that fascinates me because in life people talk about nature and nurture. Are you born aware? Are you taught about? Mm-hmm. At what stage did you realise how comfortable you were with the ball? And, and was it just something you went, oh my God, look what I can do with the ball? Or did somebody tell you what to do? No, I kind of practised. I, I was a bored child because I, I just wanted the ball and a pair of boots. My dad and my mum tried their best to obviously supply that. 
hard-working class uh, Mary Hall up I was born in the city in Glasgow, but we moved there when we were four because it was renovations. So we moved up to Mary Hill. One of my great friends was James Duffy, who never quite made it at Celtic, but had a half-decent career in Scotland. Now Morton manager. Elegant player. Elegant he was a very... But James was very tough. And James actually became like my bodyguard in a way because I always played with older guys. James was three years older and I always played with older guys. They loved to kick me because mm. I was more skillful than them. And James was always encouraged me to say, don't ever give that up. Don't give it up. So I would go and practice on my own and, and my little playpen and, and try little things because... That's how I got overboard them. Kids find other reasons to do it, but that's how I got mine. The more they kicked me, the more I realised I had to, in quick situations and tight situations, be able to move myself yeah. from getting hit. It took me a lot of bruises and a lot of cuts to eventually get through that, that phase. After about a year or so of playing with these older guys, I could move myself very quickly in and out of situations with only just getting a trip or... I think it was really that upbringing. Are we talking about red blazer? Are we talking about streets? Are we talking about we're talking about We're talking about everything. We're talking about red ash on grass, but we weren't allowed in this grass pitch because they used to call them the untouchables, used to come and chase us. And, and <laughs> we were too young to get the nick, but they would just run us off. There was always some, somebody complaining. Uh, but it was typical of work, working class areas. Because they had a bit of grass, it was so precious to them. I mean, who'd let football and grass for heaven? I mean, get off that grass, will you, with that round thing? Exactly. So, Stupid, that'll never work. So we, we used to jib ourselves on, as we would say, get ourselves on there, yeah. and then wait in the vans coming round, and we'd all flee. They, they knew where we lived, so it wasn't a hassle. You know, this is something that, that I think anybody of... We're a similar age, although we don't look at... In Scotland, we grew up not only playing like that, all of us, every minute, every space, but we watched players who could do the things you're... I mean, presumably, like me, you'd have grown up knowing immediately about Willie Henderson or Jimmy Johnson, and <laughs> you played with Gordon Strachan, who could do things that yeah. are similar to what you're describing there. But as I grew into journalism and, and travelled Europe, it seemed to be the Dutch were really keen on this street football, and Bergkamp talks this day about exactly what you said having to know about space, having the tricks, to avoid having your legs battered on cobblestones mm-hmm. or whatever. So you, you learn your tricks like that, but you leave it behind. And you led me to something I wanted to ask you anyway, because I go and watch Spanish football every, every weekend, and one of the guys who's obviously impacted me most would be Messi yep. and Iniesta. And now I'm conscious that although I truly despise what Seth Blatter's done with football while he's been in charge, I'm not a hypocrite. During his mandate, players of your size and stature and ability have been protected. Mm-hmm. Whereas, okay, it was worse than the 70, but you weren't in no. the 80s, I don't think. What was it like as a striker when you've gone off the streets, there's a referee, there are cameras. Yeah. Were you still booted from pillar to post yeah. at, at Celtic and then at Arsenal? Yeah, I, I was. I, I think maybe in a way, a lesser extent at Arsenal. Football in England was going through a strange change from the long ball percentage football, where I think the guy Charles Hughes and... Others were having a big influence. John Cartwright, who eventually came to Arsenal, which was an absolute disaster for me. But the Celtic thing was different, I think, in, in a way. Because at that time, Aberdeen were becoming very strong. We had lots of good players. But when I was 16 and, and under-18s at Celtic, Aberdeen had a great under-18s team. Some of them were in the under-18 national team with me. The United were the same. Rangers were the left-behinds. But the three of us as groups, we had an absolute great batch of proper Talented footballers, good physical footballers. There was lots of combinations. So it was a really, really bright future at that time. We were all kind of competing against each other at under-18 in the reserves. I remember playing Aberdeen reserves and Billy McNeil and the whole gang coming up with us. And it was a two-leg affair League Cup final. And Aberdeen beat us, I think they beat us 3-0, 3-1 in Pataudry. 
And Fergie was in the press the next day saying it was a great game, but how his boys are much better than us. And we came back and Fergie came down for the second leg and Billy was there because they two were competitive against each other, as you well know. Had been all their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And we beat them 5-1 to win the cup. That competition was there from under-18s. We all as Aberdeen boys and the United boys. So all we were doing was trying to move our game on to a level that was always trying to make you better mm-hmm. than what you know the, the lads that John Hewitt was. Or, you know, the lads at Dundee United was Ralph Millen and Richard Goff was coming through, Morris Malpass. So all that intensity of finding the route to how you played and getting kicked in training. Billy McNeil would purposely put me against Roddy McDonald, who was a big brute, a six-foot-two centre-half who could header the ball further than he could kick it, but he could kick me just as far. <laughs> so he knew if I could accept that and take it, yeah. as soon as I went into the first team, I'd you, be ready. You got so much kicking that it was imperative that you got used to it on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I used to have shin guards on my, on my calves. I was the first one to ever do it. You, see, you mean that, don't you? Yeah. You're not joking. No, honestly, I, I, I got to the stage that I didn't. my shin pads are reverted to the, the back of my legs because you were allowed to tackle from behind in. And that's where I was getting all, all my, my batterings from. Uh, if you get somebody face up, it wasn't an issue for me. If I get kicked, I get kicked. You can take you can the risk. see it coming to the next step. Oh, you do, because, because well, you're not waiting, because I'm, I'm usually going left to right. So the angle of the challenge doesn't really get me full on. We had to start working that out, uh, how I was going to do that. And Danny McGrain was kind of my guru. I was speaking to him about it, and it wasn't like the old plastic shin, it was like a cloth with just a little bit of you know, like the, the fish tails yeah, you yeah. get. They were a little bit heavy, but they weren't overly protected. But I just put them back to front, round, round to my calf, and they helped protect me a little bit. Those little things like that worked. But again, the Gleesh was probably the best that I ever seen taking at your feet and spinning. George McCluskey was really, really good yeah. at it. George was a wee bit more timid. Kenny could take the kick, but Kenny could always kick you back. I never really could get that philosophy in my head because my timing was typical striker. I couldn't do it. I, was just, I wasn't tough enough. Kenny was... And George was more timid than me, so he didn't always like the physical side, but he was brilliant at it. So I kind of worked away at that for a number of seasons to get it right. remember bumped into him at the golf course a week ago Neil Cooper right. Alec in one game when you were the brilliant young star at Celtic sent Neil wound him up all week didn't he famously <laughs> did, yeah. to say get that challenge let's get that challenge let's and Neil is a doer <laughs> I mean he was a very 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 good footballer I think that's underestimated too and then I think a youth world cup he was player of the tournament but mm-hmm. that day he went for you like a train now and, and put you up in the air in about five or six seconds of the kick yeah. would, it, would mm-hmm. it be yeah now Things like that, not that single incident. That must have driven you to distraction. It, it wasn't pleasant. The crazy thing was it happened to, to me the week before. We played St Mirren at home and uh, we took kick-off. And I was never one for turning and passing it back. If you gave me the ball in front of me, which kick-off is about, I want to go forward. If I, if I can't go forward, then I'm looking for David Proven on my right or Tommy Burns on my left. What's the point of passing it back 40 yards when you already have it in the halfway line? Do you do that if you're attacking? 
So I never believed in I that. hear the echoes of Barcelona and I hear the echoes of Cripe and <laughs> well, I'm full of I approval. just thought, if you're giving me the ball and you're asking me to pass it back 40 yards, why are you giving me the ball? Speak to John Cartwright. <laughs> I'm happy with that. It's just never got to me. So little Lex Richardson was a culprit at far, St Mirren, who was a very experienced player. And he came diving in and, and my, my bag of tricks was, I love nutmegs. And uh, I nutmegged him and he took me out. And he took me out and he said, you better not do that again. And I thought, I will do it again. <laughs> But the fact is, he made a statement of intention to me to say, have you tried to take the mic out of me? I'll hit you. But I said, well, it was only five seconds into the game, so it wasn't as if I'd been taking the mic out of you. He just had it in his head. He was going to nail me if he could. And of course, the following week against Aberdeen, which was an enormous game, because mm. Aberdeen were magical at coming and getting results in Glasgow. But then, and Fergie knew how to play the crowd. He knew how to play... I'm not saying he knew how to play us, but he knew where our weaknesses were, and he was very, very bright. That was a different one altogether because this was a real big, big, big game because it was us two that really... Dundee United were very good but Aberdeen and Celtic were the best two teams in the country and uh, when that hit me like that and there was no action, no yellow card, no nothing. It's quite dramatic because the boys were very quickly on it because they'd seen it the week before and of course Maguru, Danny McGrain was over, referee and Neil was still kicking me 30 minutes later and still hadn't been yellow carded and that's what gets into your head and all of a sudden Aberdeen score mm. A little petty lip comes out a bit, and you're like, <laughs> injustice, and you know, this is unfair. And I think after that match, Billy had went mad to the media saying that I don't get any protection and it's an absolute joke. We want to hound him out of the Scottish game. Made a statement on that. Didn't make any difference, really, because it's the way Scottish football was at the time. But it, it did get to me. But in a strange way, I interviewed Alex Ferguson, a sit down last year in Glasgow, and we still talk about it. Mm. And when he was my manager at the World Cup in 86, we, we spoke about it. And I don't bear any grudges. I'm not a really that type of character. But in a strange way, the fact that you mention it tells me there was something within me that terrified them, that they had to go to that cost, they do it. So it's the stupidest and funniest way around to give them a compliment, but I'll take it as that. That's very grown up, I have to say. You stressed that there was a slight difference at Arsenal or in English football. Was yeah. that because the refereeing was different? Was that because Arsenal... Uh, weren't for meddling with was that because increasingly you had a, a Toddy Adams or you had a you know Roe Castle by your side or, or, or what was the difference no the difference like? was style the style of play Arsenal were a back to front football team I wasn't a back to front footballer David Leary when Tony Adams came in the team before him we bought Tommy Cate and God rest him who was going to be a big star at Manchester City lovely pass for the ball great left foot Kenny Sansom left back Phil Anderson hadn't arrived at the time Pat Jennings in goal Graham Ricks Absolutely magnificent footballer. Wonderful footballer. Magic talent. <clears throat> Tony Woodcock, my partner up front. And Davey Rocky Rocastle, who was my wee pal when he came in the team. So we had lovely footballers, but we would train five days a week with Don Howe, who's as good a coach as I've ever worked with. Don, who'd just taken over from Neil, who'd signed you, right? Yeah. As good a coach I've ever worked with. Very clever man, eh? Very, and lovely man. Yeah. But as soon as it came to picking the team on a Saturday, the tactics were gone, the coaching was gone. It was security at the back, and then get it and knock it forward and play from there. Most of my time, my interest in football was, I liked to come to feet. I wasn't quick over 30 yards, but I was quick over 5, 10 yards. So that would get me a couple of yards if I wanted to pivot into the corners. As us Scots were taught to start inside to work outside, the Europeans start wider to come inside, and that's what makes them the geniuses and us the clowns. But to take it back to that, I like to come to feet to get it in, and then link up with, with midfield players. I spent 60 minutes most games Watching the ball fly over my head, back and forward. <clears throat> looking for a second ball, looking for a knockdown. Little pieces. Nothing to feet. 
anything piecewise, just little pieces, yeah. and I had to, I had to live off Scrap. a starvation diet. Whereas at Celtic, they they overfed me because they wanted to get them on the ball, get them on the ball. Whereas at Arsenal, they don't have that. They just go get the ball forward, get it out of your defence, and get it up there because they were trying to build again the club, and I could understand that. But you can't have seven international footballers. And you don't have a balance and you don't have a, a, a shape that you work on to take you to where the international footballers want to be, which is a go and win football match, not not want to lose football matches. For about 18 months of that, two years, it was a real difficult bite in my lip time. I couldn't work in that environment. But after about 18 months, we brought in Paul Mariner and he dropped me to the so-called number 10 position. We didn't have the triangles or Christmas tree formations in, but it was a little triangle that I played behind. And it worked a treat for about three, four months. And we were top of the league after about seven, eight games. We'd just beaten Liverpool. And I spoke to King Kenny, the Glish, after the game. And he says, you that's the best user have been for a long time. And you're playing the right position now. We then played next two games and we lost them. I got dropped. I got dropped out and he went back to his philosophy again. And that was just a hardship of realising, but it was nothing else to do other than that's the style of play Arsenal wanted and they would not change it until eventually Wenger came in. The Arsenal experience, I, I think, has been overly focused on the fact that there was a deluge of goals for you at Celtic and you were a player in command of his surroundings and you were adored. And like Larson subsequently at Celtic, the ball was given to Larson when he moved because his movement was brilliant. The ball was given to you because they knew that you would take it, hold it, and that you would do something with it. And at Arsenal, it was almost like, if you want a Charlie Nicholas, why are you playing like this? And if you're playing like this, why have you bought Charlie Nicholas? It seems to me. But there were some really fantastic moments. I remember rooting for you as a Scot, waiting for them to understand the, the <laughs> talent that they bought. And I look back on it and I see... Runs of games where you'd maybe beat sequen- and you'd score sequentially against Liverpool beating them, winning 1-0 at Man United, mm-hmm. back against Jesper Olsen, mm-hmm. scoring against QPR the next week, three big games in a row, you're scoring all the time, feeling this is it, it's going to take off. But looking at the quality of the side around you and, and thinking it wasn't that brilliant an 11 or, or a 14 maybe, as well as a negative tactics, and you came... To Arsenal at a time that wasn't meant for you, and you could yeah. have fitted and played in the Wenger era, for mm-hmm. example. I, I think in Birdcamp's role or Ian Wright's role. I love Arsenal. I'm more passionate about Arsenal than any other club because they treated me well. They were great people. It was the wrong choice at the wrong time. Liverpool, Spurs, Man United, Inter Milan were all there for me. I spoke to Liverpool a few occasions. Kenny and Sunis were kept, and you have to come. You're perfect for us. Brilliant. Kerry says you'll take over my position uh, and I said no I won't because you'll play another four or five seasons that's an incredible statement mm-hmm. it was and it was mind blowing to hear the King of Kings saying, saying that to me but uh, I got very close to him and soonest and they kept saying to me no you'll be fine you'll be fine you'll fit in you won't be sitting on the bench like a lot of Liverpool signers do but I couldn't trust that I could trust my ability but I couldn't trust the prospect that I might have to sit on the bench when at 21 I'm, I just want out Just I just want to play where can I play? I didn't want to go to Milan because I think the, the game would have been too defensive and too structured for me at 21. No doubt. Also, the lifestyle thing would have been quite a turnaround for me because I'm, you know, I'm a Glasgow social boy. And at 21 then, I still wanted to have a bit of a life. It's a very brutal league still. It's a really brutal league. It, it was. And there were so many talented technical players that had gone there and struggled. Yeah. And I thought, no, if, if it does happen, maybe 
four, five years down the line, fair yeah. enough, yeah. when you're big enough and to take it. But So for me, it was always going to be England. I met Man United too. I did think at first I probably would be drawn to. My dad was in the newspaper industry, worked at the Express most of his life, and then he got paid off, and he was in between jobs, and they were offered a role in Manchester. And my dad said, maybe there's something significant yeah. that you, would, you will eventually move to Manchester. But I didn't particularly like Ron Atkinson. Without going over the score, I'm applauding deliberately because all uh, flashing of substance, a man that I don't have a lot of admiration for, and you wouldn't have enjoyed playing for. Well, no, I, 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 I doubt it. I mean, he wasn't a particularly good conversationist because it was very much about him. <laughs> but we were sitting with Martin Edwards over a steak dinner, and we were with an international team, and Jock had let me go for dinner with him. It was steak and chips. The three steak and chips came. Ron went into his shirt and messed about with something and then brought this kind of medallion out. I thought, what's he got, a knife and fork in there or something? I mean, what What it was, he'd finished his dinner and he had a little, it was like a little cross thing, but he had a button at the top of it and this toothpick came out. And he started scraping his teeth and I thought, oh my God, am I seriously, I cannot play for a man like you. No. That's absolutely ridiculous. And I could not wait to get out of the restaurant to get away. But Martin Edwards had to take me back. So it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen in my life. It's so out of kilter with a club built by Matt Busby. So out of kilter with a club that then later supported Alex Ferguson when he needed time mm-hmm. to, to show that intelligence and, and brilliance. And unfortunately, a colleague of ours, Terry Gibson, a fantastic lad, mm-hmm. ended up playing for Ron and found him deceitful and a coward mm-hmm. and addicted to sunbeds during training sessions when well, he he's addicted. I think Ron was probably addicted to himself in many ways and that addiction was that whatever he said went now I, I know a lot of guys who work with him who think he's a really nice guy good character and some are very complimentary I take people as a fine and that one meeting I had with, with Ron it was all about Ron that's one choice that in that moment was a good choice to make because it, the click probably wouldn't have been there and you were put off him but if, if I'm not wrong, you went to Danny. Danny McGrain, apart from an unbelievable defender, great reader of the game, and in an era when we were chock full of world-class players, yeah. he was the one in world selects. People kept saying, well, if there's a Scottish player outside Dalglish who gets in a world 11, it's Danny McGrain. Mm-hmm. At least until his injury, which is so, you know, so diff- difficult to debilitate. But you went to him for advice, if I'm not wrong. You actually said, or he came to you and well, is that right or am I wrong? No, no, you're, you're right in, in the substance of it, but it started away before that. When I was 16 and I was a car mechanic, I was ready to do my qualifications at high school. I had no real interest in school. I'd lost the will to be educated in that framework because at that time there was a small recession in, in Scotland again and people were struggling for jobs. And at the time it was like if any of the kids can go and get anything at all in the market, if you can get a trade... So unfortunately, one of my teammates at Celtic Boys Club was a guy called Tommy Coakley, whose dad was a boxing promoter with Jim Watt. And they owned Citroen Franchise in George's Cross. And Eddie had said to me after training one night, look, I've got a position if you want to join us. And I said to my mum, and she was panicking because football was, was probably a not a prospect. Yeah. 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 Whereas my dad was probably a bit more inclined to believe that it was there. And uh, my mum said, no, I want you to take it. So I went with my mum's decision mm. on that. I, I didn't turn up for my... My whole levels at that time. But at that, sta- at that stage in the Scottish education system, you could get out of school at about 15, couldn't you? Yeah. I have a birthday right at the turn of New Year on 30th yeah. of December, so I'm in, in between that awkward time. But uh, anyway, the Celtic players used to come in and get some citrons and things, and then eventually I trained two nights a week. 
And then eventually I was asked, within four months, by Billy McNeil, who had just taken over from Jock, to come in and do a two-week trial. So Eddie Coke with my boss had said, get in there. Yeah. We'll give you the two weeks off, on you go. So on the second day I was there, Danny McGrain came in and I was like, a bit shaky with Danny. <laughs> Understandably. Uh, and he says, where do, you, where do you come from? I says, oh, Mary Hill Barracks. He said, I pass by there every morning. How do you get in? And I said, oh, I get the bus, I get the 61, and then I get, and I walk around the back, I can jump off, get the 64. He said, well, if I'm going by, it's such and such, is that too late for you to come in? Now, I later joined the ground staff, but I wasn't on the ground staff for that two weeks, although I did a little bit of work after two. So Danny used to bring me in, which I remember waiting, thinking, he'll forget that I'm here. <laughs> and I'm sitting outside this wee pub called The Politician, which is right obviously at the barracks entrance. And all my mates are going by in there, you know, all right, wee man, how, where, where are you waiting? And who are you waiting? I'm like, <laughs> how do you say it? <laughs> what? <laughs> and sure enough, Danny turns up. Fantastic. In you come, and he picked me up every day I was there. So ever since that, Danny always picked me up. And then there was one time Danny took me back to his house with a bit of lunch, and he showed me some footage of the glish and him. Mm. Oh, I just thought it was the most brilliant thing. I, and I, I remember sitting there at night trying to work out why did he show me not? There must be a reason he showed me that. So I don't like keeping too many things in. I like to get it out. So I asked him the next day, why, why the hell did you show me that? And he says, because I think you're ready for it. Now, I didn't know later on, but David Proven, my, my great pilots guy, later tells me that when Celtic were struggling getting bad results and I was in the reserve team, they were having team meetings and Billy McNeil was saying to George McCluskey in front of me, it's not good enough, it's not good enough. And he would say to Danny, his team captain, what have you got to say? He said, the solution is next door. He's staring you in the face Whoa. and I don't know why you don't get him in. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of this, but for, this went on for, by all accounts, four or five months. So Danny became my kind of guru. And whenever I had anything to ask, he was protocol. Full of experience, level-headed, Celtic tunes through, and unbeknownst to you, saying how the to the manager, did, a legend yeah. himself. Yeah, Play how the hell fella. he never left Celtic because everybody wanted him. Yeah. Diabetes, fractured skill, yeah. broken shin. I, I watched him coming back from the broken ankle and played Rangers reserves. John McDonald's an up-and-coming star at Rangers and they beat us 7-1. Me and my boys in the ground staff, we were all Danny McGrain fanatics. And we were, the palms of our hands were all sweating, worrying about him. And within three months, he was back in the team, back to his brilliant best. He was the most remarkable individual. Have I described it correctly? Because I'm describing my, my growing up memories of him, that it was about his... Um, tackling his judgment, his reading of situations, it felt to me, you know, principally I admired him more for for Scotland than for Celtic. But mm-hmm. it felt like he was one of these defenders who could change the tone or tempo of a game because he'd break up what seemed to be floods of attacks, take it, give it to somebody, and suddenly, you know, a ten-second gap might become a thirty-second gap, and you were on the attack. And if you were being flooded before, then it, it stopped. He, he seemed to be an enormous. Football man beyond, you wouldn't even classify him as a fullback. No. He seemed to be more to him. He was than that. far, he was far more than that. He was, he was very much an all rounder. Even when he got older, he eventually had Davy Proben, who was a great working winger, great crosser of the ball. Davy supplied a lot of goals for me, but Davy all liked to do his shift coming back, and it was quite unusual to get that. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was flicks. I do the clever things, yeah, and one twos. And, yeah. But Davy did the other side, the hard jazz, as we called it. So he was brilliant for Danny and that, but they two never really always got on. They would fall out all the time. Danny would say, yeah, you've done really well, but he would fall out with you just as quick. <laughs> so, you know, it was a reality of standard of where yeah. he played. And at Scotland, at one stage, he was the best left-back we had. And every other right-back only got in because he could play left-back. So uh, he was a most amazing character, Danny. And to still be 
floating about for me is, is, is something to achieve. But I just find that there's certain glories. You know, like we, we all want to meet heroes. Remember listening to Kenny Glush's first ever voice interview? I thought, that doesn't sound like my hero. It just sounded weird. Lots of big name people that I've, I've met in my life. John McEnroe, who I loved as a sportsman. But standing up in those, and then you meet really great, the Beckham Bars and all these type of people. Uh, Cruyffs. But Danny McGrain is right up there with anybody I've ever met. Well, you've given me a, a nice little gap here to admit that you know, I started in hospital radio Paisley. And a pal of mine, Damon Quigley, who sadly died very, very young, Celtic fanatic, said, come and do hospital radio Paisley. And I did just as soon as leaving uni. And one day out of cheek, uh, I was an Aberdeen fan not long. I mean, a couple of months after you joined Aberdeen, I wrote to the club and said, listen, I'd like to interview Charlie Nicholas for Hospital Radio Paisley. And somehow or another, that got translated into <laughs> a worthwhile project for you and the club to OK. And you breezed into it. It's not picking you up outside the barracks, but you breezed into the reception at Pataudry, off the back of training, young and full of energy, and you just turned our club into a football playing side again. And uh, it walked up to me with my little tiny tape recorder. All right, Gray. And I thought, I'm made. That's me for life. <laughs> if I never do another interview. The patients around the Paisley and Renfrewshire area, they got a beauty of an interview that day. So that, that's my equivalent of meeting a hero.